Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome, animation fans, to another thrilling episode of the AFA podcast, the official podcast for animationforadults.com. My name is Rachel, and I'm only going to do that voice for so long, but um, my name is Rachel. I'll be the host for today's Halloween episode, Um, and joining me today are uh, some fellow thrill seekers, Dan. Hi, I don't have a Halloween name. That's okay. Hi, we'll, hi, Rachel. Or we'll, Halloween voice. We'll, we'll come up with it as the episode goes on. And we have a brand new guest today where we're very excited to, do, to introduce. He's already contributed uh, quite a bit to animationforadults.com. He's written a couple of uh, blog pieces as well as reviews and, we're very, and interviews as well. So we're very thrilled to have him make his official podcast debut. Uh, everyone say hello to Evan. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Evan, really, thank you so much for coming on uh, the show today uh, for your official hol- first holiday episode as well. Um, and uh, just as we like to do this with all of our first-time contributors, uh, what brought you to help talking with us here on uh, the AFA podcast today? Um, well, it really goes back to when I was uh, six years old. Um, mm-hmm. I guess as a little kid, I didn't really understand exactly what animation could do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember seeing um, a particular film. It was uh, The Last Unicorn by Rankin and Bass. Oh, you mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, still my heart. Yeah. So you probably already know, Rachel. Um, it was a very beautiful film. And I couldn't really articulate what I felt watching it because I was only six. You know, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't really, I guess, process all the emotions that uh, were going through my mind um, when I saw that film. But I, I think that it kind of laid the seeds uh, for... Um, I, I guess what would develop into a greater appreciation for animation as an artistic medium. Um, you know, I've, I've learned over time that it can appeal to adults, you know, as, as well as children mm-hmm. um, and obtain a level of expression that um, is equivalent to and sometimes surpasses live action film. Um, so that's kind of how I got here. Um, I started volunteering through your sister organization, uh, Animation Nights New York, yeah. and eventually uh, got on with uh, AFA. So really yeah. happy to be here. Yeah, um, and what is, uh, when you're uh, contributing to uh, Animation Nights New York, can you kind of give us like a brief summary of what you do for them? Um, Well, it's been a little on and off with um, COVID um, going on. You know, that's severely complicated things. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just been general promotional work, like copywriting, um, some development stuff. Um, Nothing too major, but I'm I'm hoping to do more once everything gets better. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the big key. And I know Yvonne's already doing a lot of hard work to try and... uh, take things the next step and try to get uh, Animation Nights New York into a new format so people can continue to enjoy all these wonderful short films that people keep sending her. And uh, she keeps telling me about how the number of those submissions keeps going up and up. And it's just a matter of uh, figuring out how to 
catch up with all of them, but it's the fact that we get to experience that at all in that kind of format is fantastic. And hopefully we'll have a opportunity soon where uh, we'll be able to enjoy those shorts again. But for the time being, uh, let's get on to the reason why we're here. Um, we originally weren't sure, entirely sure what we were going to discuss for our holiday episode this year, since we've covered quite a few things, a few topics over the last couple of years. But this was suggested by uh, one of our contributors, uh, the main uh, head of the uh, brainchild of uh, Animation uh, for Adults, uh, Chris. Why don't we talk about one of the uh, very influential uh, Japanese animation directors, Satoshi Kon, who has quite a uh, distinctive style and uh, very beautiful uh, look to his filmmaking. Uh, but also you can, if you look at some of his films, they tend to stick to a little bit more of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh gosh, like, it's not like, not all of his films are like this because, uh, but the one that I think got most people are familiar with, per Perfect Blue, uh, was a very unnerving film. And I have to say, I just finished watching that today. So we'll be talking about that. But of course, some of his other films as well. But mostly we'll be trying to talk about what the style that he brought to his films and how, I guess the, what I'm really looking for, like they were able to get under the skin of the audience in both good and bad ways. You know, not say bad ways, but startling ways is a better word to describe it. Um, so uh, out of the two of you gentlemen, who's, uh, you think, I think Evan, you said you've seen the most of uh, like Satoshi Kon's uh, films. So let's start with you. Um, what was the first uh, Satoshi Kon film that you uh, had chance to see? Um, it was kind of happenstance because I had no clue who he was at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. but I remember seeing Paprika, I think um, ah. like sometime during high school and just feeling completely blown away because it was so psychedelic and so confusing but also interesting at the same time um and uh, from there i was just kind of hooked and went down the satoshi cone rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> so. no i would say uh, the alice in wonderland style rabbit hole is actually probably a very apt way to describe satoshi cone's films so let's run with that <laughs> um and uh dan how about you what was your first movie that you saw from this director? Oh, uh, my first one was uh, Millennium Actress because it was just, um, it was that, you know, like it was high school as well, but it was like the stage of just like, well, this makes me sound so, not, it's okay, sorry. Video stores were a thing. Mm -hmm. and I used to go to them and like, just you, that was where you got anime and what was available was what you kind of got. And I, you know, I um, uh, I got uh, Millennium Actress and um, I watched that, but basically it was about availability because it was the only one that was available in the UK at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't really like, uh, it was a good movie. It didn't blow me away. And then mm -hmm. for some reason, some years later, I stumbled across Tokyo Godfathers and that was the one that really made me like go, oh, wow, what's this? Mm -hmm. um, and then I can't remember how I, you know, watched watched the rest. But I only recently finished watching all of his work because uh, this year I watched Paranoia Agent, the TV series. Oh yes, okay. I, that is something I unfortunately have not seen yet, but I've heard good things about. It's just, I think from what I've heard about it, you have to be in the right mood, like almost kind of like Perfect Blue. You have to be in the right mood for it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think. Uh, 
I think it's actually probably uh, most similar to Perfect Blue out of all of his uh, out of all of his work. It's very much leaning on like uh, well, paranoia and horror as a as a theme. Like it's mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a thriller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I I mean out of all of us here, I probably have the le- uh, least amount of experience with his films. The first film of his that I ever saw. Uh, was in fact Tokyo Godfathers, um, which was, I think I saw about uh, two to three years ago at this point. Um, I rented it um, at, and I insisted that my family watches it, watched it for Christmas. And uh, we really dug it. Um, I was surprised that, you know, when I insisted, it's like, hey, you know, mom, Michael, my brother, it's like, hey, we need to watch this movie. Let's, it's, I've been heard it's a really great Christmas movie. And even though they were hesitant initially, we all walked away really enjoying the film, and uh, I I hope it will start to become a regular viewing uh, in the in future. But um, in order to prep for this podcast, uh, I decided to say, you know what, I'll watch one of you know one of the other films to kind of get ready. And why? But we were talking about, like I said, Perfect Blue is the the film. Probably, if you're going to try and get a gist of what this director is about maybe that's the film to watch because that really is like kind of how he defined his style I believe and oh that's like I'm not sure if I can even say a word about it it's just like oh my like if we are talking like psychological thriller style horror I don't think I've seen anything that tops this like it's it's weird because it's like such a, I mean, it's presented in such a surreal way at points because especially when the latter portion of the film where, um, and we'll, we can go into a bit more detail of this later, where it has so many like sporadic cuts between, you know, what is perceived to be reality versus, you know, what is being performed on stage or being like recorded by like a television or a camera or a film camera it just goes back and forth and it just like, it just jars your senses. So you're kind of right there with the main character. And then of course the climax is just, oh, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm getting chills, goosebumps just thinking about it because just, ugh, I don't know if what more else I could say about that at the top for the time being, but it's just, I stylistically, I liked how it felt surreal, but also very grounded because that's something I think when I've looked at Satoshi's style is that there's a grounding element to it. And um, I'm not sure if either one of you might want to elaborate on that. If, if I'm, if, if I'm, if they, you pick up on that also. Uh, yeah, totally. I think that it, um, grounding is actually a really good uh, descriptor because he has um, uh, a pretty realistic style really when it comes to animation mm-hmm. sort of, um, sort of a product of, you know, uh, the sorts of projects he was involved with in animation and he was a comic artist as well. Right, yeah, um, he had a couple of mangas, didn't he? For some years, yeah. Um, and he was working with uh, directors like uh, Minoru Oshii and mm. uh, Katsuhiro Tomo and I think that probably influenced his, his idea of, like you're saying, like a, a grounding and I guess it's, I mean, um, I'm always very wary using the language around uh, animated movies, mm. but it's quite um, representational of live action sort of photography. Right. Um, it's very grounded in like, 
um, the way that live action movies have developed uh, their like visual sensibility. And um, uh, yeah, I guess that's how I describe it. Like everything is very, you know, like characters are very well proportioned. And like, if there is um, a train, it's not just like a train that he's designed. No, like they've gone out and he's like, on like, no, this is going to be the train in this neighborhood, particular to this uh, part of the world, you know, at this, you know, this time. Um, uh, yeah, and but he does that and then he manages to um, have all of that control so he can then bend it. Uh, you know, like you're saying, um, he, he can bend that reality because he has full sort of control over it. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Um, I, if I'm following your line of thought, Dan, I guess that the, the realism, the, the sort of visual realism that's evident in um, Cohn's films um, might explain how he's been influential in live action cinema. Um, before I got into Satoshi Kon, I was a big Darren Aronofsky fan. And time and again, Aronofsky, who's directed films like Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan, mm. continually cites Satoshi Kon as um, an influence. And you can see him, um, you know, kind of borrowing directly from Kon's cinematography. I think he actually bought the rights to Perfect Blue um, just so he could use the bathtub scene in Requiem for a Dream where Mima's uh, sh- like screaming underwater. Um, oh, right, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it comes back to something I know we've talked about in a, a couple of other uh, animated films on this podcast, um, where you come down to the whole like, questions like, okay, this story, this idea, like certain elements of it, like you could see like someone trying to make it into a like, or basically have it as live action instead of animation, but they well, chose to do yeah. animation. It's funny, it's funny you mention that because Perfect Blue actually did begin life as a live action series when the right. project was first being developed by, um, by Tomo, I think. Um, yes. It was made as a, as a live action um, proposal, but then I think there was an earthquake and it made production hard or the production company uh, um, studio was hit mm-hmm. hard. So they, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was like the mid nineties and, in Japan and anime OVAs, which, you know, sort of like um, straight to video releases mm-hmm. were their own viable market in and of themselves. Um, and it was very easy because it was a time mode just to say, okay, well, let's make it like, uh, let's make it an animation then. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then from there, he recommended Khan, who he'd been working with for a few years uh, already and was sort of, um, had proved himself as sort of like, you know, in, in animation and as a writer as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to, to helm the film. Um, but it was, it wasn't like a case of, um, and this I think is pretty commendable. It wasn't necessarily a case of follow it in my house style, uh, you know, um, as, a, as my protege. It was very much sort of just saying like, well, here's the concept. I think they had like some keywords like um, idol, fan, and horror. And so long as like the brief, you know, as long as they kind of st- stuck to that brief, mm-hmm. um, 
Khan and his writer are pretty much able to do whatever they wanted with the concept. Wow. Uh, but it, it's funny, like you said, like you know, it's a Halloween episode, and I think I, I'm really I'm comfortable like calling Perfect Blue a horror movie because it's straight up um, very mm-hmm. uncomfortable to watch, and it, it is, and it um, and it does bend reality in a few different ways, and you're not sure, like you're saying, like what part of someone's identity uh, is being assumed at what moment or um, you know who 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 the villain is, even or or if mm-hmm. there is a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a pretty strange movie for like a you know for for a director to debut with because he he doesn't really make any movies quite like this one uh, after this point. Mm-hmm. There are obviously sort of like motifs and similarities and like you know the the sort of um, his eye is quite similar in lots of his movies. The, the idea of, um, uh, you know, very abruptly changing one scene into another uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, matching like um, action or something through, you know, and creating a transition like that. Yeah, Millennium yeah. Actors did something like that too. Cause I know yeah. a couple of the scenes um, in Perfect Blue, like I was just mentioning earlier, like something that you, originally perceive as just the everyday of uh, the main character Mima's life. And then it turns out it was, she was recording a scene for her film or, and or someone, it, uh, what you perceive to be a conversation between two girls is actually a radio show. Um, but also in the idea of millennium actress, from what I understand, because this is being told from, you know, this is basically the retelling of someone's life. So you're kind of going back and forth between her retelling her life and then the parts that were her life and the parts that the, were the part of the film that she was involved in. And it's like hard to tell. You have to really kind of be aware while you're watching those films. This is not, this is, these are films, at least those two films in particular to my understanding are definitely not one that you're just gonna sit and like mindlessly watch. Like this is gonna make you sit mm-hmm. up and think for sure. It, but it's a really impressive like balancing act as well. Like you know, not to piss off the audience doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, you get lost, but it's it's a kind of, you know, like a horror movie or um, or a thriller. There's there's um, the audience. You know, as the audience, you're still kind of interested in in exactly how you're being lost, and it's not it's not um, alienating, really. I don't mm-hmm. think you're, no. you're still kind of involved as an audience. Yeah. What are you, what are your thoughts, Evan, on? Uh... I think that's, I, I think Dan's on the money. Um, I mean, I, I'll confess, you know, when I was watching Perfect Blue for the first time, I was very lost until about the very end. Um, because, you know, you talk about this element of grounding in um, Cohn's films, Dan, um, you know, he kind of did some of the mental legwork for us um, when we learned, you know, that, it, you know, Mima, um, you know, I, I guess was suffering from some sort of delusion, Um and her manager was as well. And then you have, you know, this kind of, after all of these, I, I guess, hallucinations and whatnot, and this really just kind of, um, you know, flurry of different scenes at the end, you, you finally have that ending moment where you're back in the real world and you see things for what they really are. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting we talk about the climax of uh, 
perfect blue, at least how we kind of going off your point, Evan, and we're going to be very light on spoilers here um, because mm. obviously if you haven't seen perfect blue, you know, it is a amazing looking film as unnerving as it might be to watch. If you are curious about Satoshi Kon's works, I highly recommend it. I think all of us here would recommend that film to uh, people who haven't seen it yet. Um, but it's definitely his most upsetting film. Like it's, gosh, yes, and like it's. I think it's um, it's rated eighteen. Like unlike any of his other, I think no, I think I think Paranoid Agents also got that same rating. But it's like the one that's the most explicitly, you know, there's like sexual violence and well, yeah, part of the um, scene that it's, uh, it's 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 actually. I mean, you know. Uh, it's, it is upsetting to watch in mm-hmm. in, in a few scenes, and not, I think since, not for the faint of heart. Yeah, I think since then, Satoshi Kon himself has even questioned whether he went too far with a few things, and whether he could have made the similar um, a similar narrative point without um, uh, you know being being so explicit about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But in a way, um, I. You know, it, it's 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 nice that it it's nice it's it's nice that it like tackles its subject matter head on, mm-hmm. and it says like, oh, you know, this is um, a pretty ugly industry, and oh, it God. shows you exactly how how ugly it is, and the repercussions, like everything that the film covers, um, primarily, and you know, you'll people who watch the film will find out about this pretty quickly what it's about and how fans can perceive their these idols these people these celebrities that you know are really just everyday people living their lives but there's something to be said about separating the actual person and their public well i don't say public face that i remember i heard someone call it when I've, I've heard like other people talk about perfect blue uh and calling like the difference between the person and their avatar which makes which i think is a lot more relevant today because people today they have their their physical lives and then they also have the lives that they project via social media now so it's like the whole kind of like if you want to call it a cautionary tale to people who get those two things mixed up or like where does the person end and the avatar begin and vice versa like that probably that message probably has more relevance today than I think it probably did back when it first came out in 1997 if I'm if I'm correct 1997 was the year that it came out uh I think so yeah I think so I think um yeah I mean I in recent years he's sort of like people have rediscovered his filmography because um he's sort of been seen like you're saying Rach as like a bit of a prophet almost for the 21st century and for um particularly how uh, uh, being online for everyone has basically, you know, brought up so many more problems and, um, or, or, or rather has sort of, um, uh, 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 you know, magnified problems with society. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's fascinating that, like you're saying, Rach, that, um, I mean, I think, I think when he made the film in Japan, there probably was like a bit more of a, um, the idol culture that's being depicted. Oh yeah. But the thing that he was innovative with was the the you know the the chat room and how and how um, 
and how pressure uh, from fans and obsession from fans um, was uh, was suddenly now like not being at all filtered through uh, like, like a manager or an agent or something. It was just mm-hmm. like going straight to straight to her inbox and um, and affecting her as well. And like she, you know, she thinks that she can separate her two selves, but the films question the film questions if 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 she can or not and um you know like like you were saying before like the film does have a resolution mm-hmm. but it's not like super tidy it's purposefully um ambiguous i think in the way that lots of psychological thrillers mm-hmm. you know sort of tend to be um I, I wonder yeah. where, to follow that line of thought, Dan, I kind of wonder where the inability to, to separate the avatar from the true self or the, the assumed identity from the true um, organic human identity comes from. You know, is that just a result of pressure from fans or maybe a lack of privacy that's, um, you know, kind of started with Mima's Room, that online social platform, and has maybe been um, pronounced through social media? Um, and it's become more of an issue today, like you said, because you can just get on your phone and see those messages unfiltered, or if there's some sort of, you know, underlying reason for that, you know, why is it that these big celebrities um, are unable to, to, to separate the two if, if what Khan's saying is right? I, I the question. <laughs> I, that, I guess that's the, that's the thesis of the movie. Yeah. Um, and that's not an easy question to answer. It's, I think everyone no, it's, it's come not. up with their own idea of what the answer is but none of them are inherently wrong or correct i i I think the thing that is um intriguing about it as well is that um uh, you know to talk about connor's a director he clearly uh likes me he doesn't he's not so judgmental of her uh you know her life choices or Mm -hmm. her career choices it's it's presented in um, pretty sympathetic light. Oh yeah. And it's and it's pretty much um, you know uh, she's presented as a product of of her industry really more than more than a more than an individual I think who is at fault. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. It's it's a it's a great movie. It's funny. I um I watched it and. I really liked the mix of, uh, you know, thriller elements with horror elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hadn't seen any of the sort of the Italian, um, like giallo movies, as they're called, uh, at the time. And, you know, these sort of like very cheap, um, cheaply produced uh, thrillers, usually with like a woman being pursued uh, the center of them. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think at the time when it came out, because, um, Satoshi Kon always had, uh, you know, it, this film, I think premiered in, um, like I, I want to say Toronto. Mm. Um, but it basically from the start, he was embraced by the international sort of film community and not just animation, uh, circles and right. uh, as such his film was always being viewed through the prism of 
um, you know, kind of unjustly uh, someone who wanted to make live action movies because it so much resembled, um, you know, the, the idiom of live action movies compared to a lot of American animation mm-hmm. at the time and, and still today. Yeah. Um, so they drew comparisons with his work between these like Jello movies, um, mo- like um, uh, uh, Dario Argento, the, the director who's probably best known in that in that genre for making these sorts of movies. Okay. And I think he was like being interviewed at the time and like, oh yeah, like Argento is clearly an influence. And he's like, never seen that. I've never, I've never seen those movies. Yeah, he's, he said he's never much, I think there was, yeah, there was an interview where he's like, I'm not much of a, I don't really watch a whole lot of uh, these films that I like. Or that yeah, I, the people who influence my style. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah, famously, I think he's not really an anime fan either. He's, um, he, he likes live action movies, but, mm-hmm. but like most directors, there comes a point where, you know, you have the, the stage where, where a director is like soaking everything up. And then there's this sort of like crystallization period where it's like, well, for better or worse, like their influence are their influences are kind of stuck where they are now mm-hmm. and you know they get more busy so they watch less movies and you know get less influenced by by um uh by the outside world mm-hmm. um yes i but um t- talking about like being influenced by live action movies i think it's been like widely written about but one of his key influences was um was George Roy Hill's uh, mm-hmm. Slaughterhouse Fight, uh, based on the Kurt Vonnegut uh, novel, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you've read the novel, plays a lot with jumping around through time, mm-hmm. and um, and the movie plays, you know, very uh, very smartly with the idea of translating that through the film uh, idiom of like, well, you know. Uh, using different transition techniques like cuts and, and you know, fades and, and match cuts and things to sort of play around with, oh, where are we? What, what, what's happening? And I think, like, um, that was clearly something that interested him and he sort of felt like um, he was... Uh, so long as he was kind of able to work that way, it seems like he was kind of happy because um, I guess like maybe, uh, sh- should, we, should we move on to Millennium Actress now, his next movie? Yeah, I was, uh, I was actually just gonna lead into that. Um, I was gonna ask both of you, um, since I think both of you have had a chance to see this movie, I unfortunately have not, um, but how would you compare going from Perfect Blue to, you know, I mean, obviously he made a few other things between this, um, but how would you say things changed or shifted with from Perfect Blue into Millennium Actress in terms of either storytelling or visual style? Um, Evan, do you want to take a crack at this one? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still trying to gather my thoughts, but I think the most obvious separation is um, just the subject matter. Um, mm-hmm. Millennium Actress is um, also about a, a woman's you know, psychological experiences um but it's a lot less macabre um i i mean um chiyoko fujiwara the the main character in millennium actress um is tormented in her own way 
Um, but it has more, it's more of a love story. Um, it's more of a sort of like romanticized form of torture than just the very cerebral, um, almost insidious, you know, sort of suffering that, um, uh, Mima's going through. <laughs> so. Oh, for sure. I don't, well, oh, there's, I don't think there's a word that that's probably the best way to describe it because I was, as I was watching perfectly, I don't think I could come up with a better word for what that whole experience was, but good to know that millennium actress sounds like a lot of a, no, better, better. I wouldn't say better experience, but just different yeah. experience. It, it's <laughs> interesting because yeah. um, I, I, it's my personal favorite out of all of Cone's films that I've seen. Um, and it sounds like you guys might differ on that front. But anyway, um, um, I'll uh, cede the floor to Dan here because I'm, I'm sure you got good things to say. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I, it's funny. I, do, I did rewatch it this year. I think that... Um, in some ways, it's probably his most focused film, um, mm. and it's it's um, you know it's easier to watch. Like definitely, it is a nicer experience. Like no doubt, it's <laughs> it leaves you with this feeling of um, it, it, yeah, the opposite of hopelessness. You know, like or hope, I guess. But you know, it's Helpful. it's yeah, it, it it is about a lost sense of um love and it's, it's basically um you know uh the, the the way that it's i for me it's 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 about the way that as humans we process the past mm. and how we choose to remember things and um uh interestingly it's you know it's the, this this actress talking about her life and career um and again, like it's more blurring of seams where her life gets blurred with the roles that she plays. And um, there, are, there are interesting moments where she clearly, you know, is remembering um, uh, the, a filming experience as very different from the way that a film itself is remembered. Mm -hmm. So th it's always kind of playing with this... Um, uh, you know, a, d a dilemma of sorts, right? About, you know, uh, there have always been two sides basically to to everything that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I really do like the movie. It's, um, I think it might be his shortest, I'm not sure. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, in terms of like a filmography, it's a zag away from perfect. You wouldn't necessarily expect it to come from Satoshi Kon, I don't think. Um, mm. it's, but it's clearly a decision to make a lighter movie, um, but not one any less you know, lacking in, um, in thought or, or consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's got, a, it's got a good story as well, I think. Okay. Yeah. I, I will definitely mark that down on next, on next one of his films to see. Because um, I think the only one, the only other two that I haven't seen at this point, at least the ones I've heard recommendations to watch would be that one. And then we'll get to talk about Paprika in a second, because that was one of his right. last films that he made before uh, he unfortunately passed away. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, yeah, Millennium Actress is, um, it's, it's a really good movie. It is. Uh, and again, he's sort of like developing this sense of like what his editing style is. You know, mm. there's a really good um, uh, 
a YouTube video um, on every frame of painting all about his editing styles. Really? Okay. And that sort of becomes a bit more crystallized here, this sense of, um, I mean, there's a strong sense of precision in his work, uh, not just because he's an animator, I don't think. I mean, it, it's about planning a movie. And I think there's obviously a more precision you get from being an animation director. He, you know, famously, he drew all of his own storyboards and they're, they're kind of notorious for being the most detailed among storyboards in in animation um mm. you know they essentially become like blueprints for the movies uh that's uh, incredible that's actually, a lot of work yeah well it, it's a lot of work but it was also beneficial because in, in the end they could use his um his storyboards as as layouts so it's kind of skipped like a stage for the animators um, when it came to uh, refining the compositions and things. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, actually, just to speak about him as a, as a, as a director in the studio, is my understanding that he was actually very, very beloved um, amongst his, his crews. Mm. And he worked with the same animators uh, quite a few times again. Um, uh, I think most of his movies were produced at Madhouse, Yes. Um, which again was sort of like a, um, a you know, a champion of his work. They weren't necessarily uh, the highest grossing films. Uh, he was still very much a bit of a, um, an art house outlier, even in Japan, uh, when it came to his films being received. Yeah, but like I was saying, it was, um, you know, it sounds like he was, uh, you, you could easily mistake him for being like a tyrant when it comes to, you know, oh, he, you, you know, you hear about directors like having control. You think of like mm -hmm. James Cameron, like yelling at people, like that's not what he was. He was, he was very um, uh, receptive to the way his crews felt. And I think um, uh, that for me is, uh, you know, that's got to be part of his legacy. Um, there are many animators who did, you know, some of their best work um, on his movies and followed him through, uh, followed him, you know, followed his uh, his projects and, you know, even worked on like his, his TV series. That's amazing um, to have for an animator to have that kind of security to know that, you know, if you, that they were, as long as, you know, he right. was making films that they would, you know, they would have stuff to do. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, like, so, I mean, in terms of like, if we could like, you know, to, in terms of style, like, it's really hard to pin down what Millennium Actress is because you, you've got, it, it, sort of the point of it is it is this, um, like a collage of different styles of movies. And it's, you know, it's got like uh, some very knowing like references to lots of um, uh, like iconic Japanese cinema. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, he's, he's, I mean, the groundedness is still there mm -hmm. because, you know, with that in place, he can then, uh, start to, start to shift it. I think, I think what I mean by that is like, you know, when you're, if you have a live action movie and there's a special effect, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's, you know, generally now that it kind of pops a bit. You're watching a movie and you're like, oh, that this is a special effects scene. 
Right. And the benefit I think that animation has, particularly in the way that Con uses it, uh, and I mean, you know, to 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 the to the to the fullest extent on something like Paprika, is that everything is sort of contained in the same. Um, there's no, there's no like good way to say there's like grammar or idiom of you know it's not like oh there's one image laid on top of another and this is a special effect scene like it, the the image itself can like suddenly bend and it's very um natural because of that and mm, I, I think that's uh a large part of why it's intriguing because he can do stuff that live action and uh live action directors like can only dream of when it comes to like the seamlessness of uh, integrating lots of elements together. Mm. That's a really cool way to look at it. I'll, huh, I have to chew on that one. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I will just I will just inject this one comment here, uh, Dan. You you keep talking time and again about this element of of visual grounding in his films, mm-hmm. and. In my humble opinion, I think what might arguably give Millennium Actress a slight leg above Perfect Blue um, is that Chioko, her- Chioko herself kind of grounds the viewer. Um, ah. And when I say that, when I say that, um, you know, even though she's a movie star um, or just a star, much like um, Mima is, I feel like Mima's psychological experiences are solely a product of consumer pressure. And for that reason, she's not very relatable. But the kind of, you know, I, I guess, pining sense of hunger, just general, not even romantic, but just spiritual insatiability that Chioko feels as she's moving through the film is something that all of us can relate to on a very fundamental level. That is um, because she's chasing this abstraction as of a, of a man, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's the abstraction itself, not really the man I'd argue that she's after. Um, and you know, I think, uh, you know, Dan, Rachel, um, if you, I, I think you'd agree with me on this. Um, there's always something in life that, that we, that we want that we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, when we get it, there's going to be something else. Um, yeah. I'd also, I'd almost argue that it makes Chioko, more relatable but also a little less sympathetic because that's kind of a negative side of 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 being human that that we don't really want to acknowledge but it's there yeah it's that whole idea that we're always kind of chasing that perfect you know that like oh if i had this i'd be happy or if i achieve this if i get this that i'll be finally satisfied when in reality that's never the case like there's there's whole but like you know, at least there's there are people who mentally you know try to like overcome those particular type of urges like you know try to be happy in the now try to be happy with what you have those kind of right things but it's just there always there's always something that human beings want and that that want again like you said makes us like relate to those kind of characters why do you think that we get behind certain film characters uh in generals because they have uh something that they really want to go after whether it's uh whether we perceive it as selfish or unselfish once like there's a reason like all disney princesses have the almost how them have the i want song mm-hmm. if make that comparison and why that it's part that's part of the reason why we get behind those characters is because oh we have they have a want that i can sort of relate to but i, yeah. love, I like you drawing that comparison evan but it's it's the chase it's it's the chase as well like she, mm-hmm. i don't think uh, Choco realizes her fault, and um, 
you know, it's, it's not, not her fault, but, you know, the, the fact that she is pining for something which is clearly long gone. Um, and I think the film has a very, like, wistful uh, quality because of that. It's sort of set in, um, in the shadow of, like, a, a, the movie studio she worked at that is being mm. demolished. And, oh, wow. Um, and she's being interviewed. It has this framing device of being interviewed by a documentary filmmaker who, is, who happens to be uh, a super fan in, but it depicted in a way that's a bit cuter than the fans, the super fans in that. Uh, yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> in, perfect, in perfect blue. He's, he's sort of like a middle-aged guy who, um, uh, who, who just idolized um, an actress through her career and is very um, uh, touched at the opportunity to, to, um, to meet his, you know, to meet one of his heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the yeah the course of the movie is kind of him about him discovering the the woman behind the actress mm-hmm. that he's talking to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you're right, Evan. Again, it's actually it's not a clean resolution. There's this there's this sense of uh, you know, was it worth it or 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 you know is is it worth having regrets about about her life and the way the way she lived it. Mm. Uh, I love the yeah I love these like at least with the two movies that we've talked about so far uh they're very like I said earlier they, they're movies that sit down and make you think you're they're not passive viewing experiences at all um yeah from my perspective yeah. but yeah so and then of course that brings us to the uh first film that of Satoshi Kon that I saw and the one uh Dan that you talked about that you really resonated with um uh, and that is Tokyo Godfathers. Again, we'll probably go light and overall, like try to stay away from any potential spoilers. But this is, in terms of kind of going off what we've been going through from evolution between Perfect Blue to Millennium Actress and now to Tokyo Godfathers, which I believe came out two years after um, Millennium Actress. This film has a, I say it jumps around a lot less compared to yes. at least from what we've been talking about. I mean, obviously there are moments where we'll cut back as we're focusing the film follows uh, three individuals who are homeless and they, uh, they kind of live, interact with each other in their, in their homeless community. Um, and they find a baby that's been abandoned and it's Christmas. It's around the Christmas time and one way or another, they find themselves on this uh, adventure to reunite this child with uh, their family. And that's how where the film more or less goes from there. But, and over the course of the film, we do see instances where we get to see the lives that these people lived before they found themselves living in like, you know, without a home or living on the streets. Uh, but I don't think it is the one those moments are cut to or those flashbacks are, uh, shown in the film it's not nearly as like surprising or like jarring in the in the case of perfect blue um it's very much just like oh we're getting a bit of we're getting a nugget of character info about who these people are and what led them to where they are today which i really enjoyed yeah it's it's my favorite Kong film um yeah, because the the, the the um, it's just present. You know, their their past lives are presented in pretty 
conventional um, flashback form, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, again, like this is consciously for Khan, it was, I think, an attempt to go, well, let's make something more comedic and lighter in tone still. And, and actually like, uh, you know, simpler, um, easier to follow and probably something that might play better to an audience as a mm-hmm. whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that that's there. And as an audience member for this movie, I love it. Um, it is, like you said, it is a very funny film. Like, yeah, there are a yeah, lot of yeah. like, just laugh out loud reactions to and I'll, I hope this won't spoil anything, but there's just the, I will just say the one line's like, like really was, e- he really was eating for two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a really odd, interesting, uh, lovable movie for me. It's, it, I mean, for, first of all, it's showing a side of, um, of Japan that's rarely seen in anime, and you know, side of Tokyo in particular, it's mm-hmm. it's about uh, the unseen corners and who lives in those unseen corners, and um, it could. But the thing about that setup is, it could easily be very mawkish and um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wallow in itself. Uh, but it's not that at all. The characters are presented in this very lively. Um, and this very lively fashion in which they, uh, in, in which, you know, their circumstances are there, but it's not the thing, you know, that's, um, that defines them, actually. No. The characters defined more, like, you know, like you're saying, like, more by their past, but also defined in the way that they interact with each other. And their interaction is just, I mean, like, geometrically, it's just a great idea for, you know, three people, okay. Mm-hmm. With, with different paths, like, coming together for one cause. And, um, you know, it's like, it's also, it's one of those, um, it's it's like planes and trains and automobiles, where it's like, uh, it's a holiday movie where people are stuck together. And they're not necessarily the best friends, but that is kind of why they're so, they're so interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could easily talk for like two hours about this, but I'm going, you know, I want to hear what Evan uh, thinks about this movie. Um, Godfathers is the one Satoshi Kon film I haven't seen. Um, so my okay. input's going to be a bit limited on this. Um, but, um, you know, just <clears throat> listening to what you've said, Dan, um, it, it sounds like the storytelling um, in uh, Tokyo Godfathers was, uh, I guess, maybe a little out of out of character, out of style for what we'd usually expect from Cohn. Um, I, I, I kind of wonder what the reason for that might be, because I think about these kind of, you know, Japanese auteurs like, like Miyazaki, who, who have um, also kind of, I guess, strayed away from their their usual voice their usual style every now and then like i think ponyo uh was a lot more light-hearted than most of miyazaki's films mm-hmm. um there might be a psychology to that or maybe it's just um you know coincidence um mm-hmm. that we see that elsewhere too as well as with cone so yeah i mean obviously there's still like the elements like if you had to, like it, it's interesting if you point out the 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 idea of our tourism uh evan because like you you do with the talking about Miyazaki, you have the 
reoccurring elements of flying sequences and uh, environmental messages uh, in, in, in depending on which of Miyazaki films that you're watching. Uh, but at least in terms of what I'm picking up from Khan, at least from not just from us talking about it, but also from what I've seen so far, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, use of duality from what I've I've noticed with his films. Like obviously, there's the way that it's seen in Perfect yeah. Blue, um, the the main character of Millennium Actress, her past self versus herself of the of today. And then in the, the case of these characters in Tokyo Godfathers, it is, as Dan was saying, it is how they, these, these three homeless individuals, how they interact with each other today and who they were before and kind of how those two play off each other. So if like, that just seems, that, that's just sticking out to me uh, as like the one big reoccurring thing, other than the very uh, realistic take on the des character design and animation uh, of these films in terms like we talked about that grounding that we were talking about before. Um, but also mm -hmm. the fact that that seems to be another big reoccurring thing uh, that seems when we look at the talk about these movies that see that keeps popping into my head like, oh, this is this is similar to that in this way. And I'm wondering if that's just a theme that he just for whatever reason was really curious to uh, look at different ways that that could be presented in film. You know, I'm Probably wouldn't know if I, unless I actually talked to the guy. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm ever going to have a chance to do that. But at the very least, it's fun to speculate about when you look at his work. Oh, definitely. I think like that's the intriguing thing is that he can't. You know, there's there's very little um, of him actually talking about his own work, and all we have is is the movies. Um, and I, I like that. And I think that you know, well, you know, I, I like that in a way. Obviously, I would much prefer. Uh, for Satoshi Kon to still be making films and to uh, still mm -hmm. be alive. But, um, you know, I think, like, it's also irresistible at a certain point with certain directors who have uh, distinctive voices to, to not go towards tendencies of, you know, um, there, you know there's, uh, in, in film theory, the idea that directors make one movie again and again and again and again, ah. essentially. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to uh, themes and how they're depicted and things like that. Um, but in a way, like, that's why I like Tokyo Godfathers is, is as, a, as an exercise, it's, it's one purely about um, Khan's technique. There's nothing, there, well, there's, 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 there's not much in the script as such, if you look at it that way, that says, oh, this is, this, you know, this is the next movie from the guy who did Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. It's like, well, okay, well, it's this, but it's about how he does it and the ways in which he chooses to depict things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with, I mean, talk about grandness. This for me has a very conscious um, attempt to, to obviously to avoid the landmark of, of Tokyo mm -hmm. um, but also to depict them in a very like unidealized form and that really appeals to me because um, uh, you're always seeing the characters in that context and the characters themselves are sometimes depicted in like really cartoony fashion mm -hmm. and you know as like these um, you know like like big comic performances and then in the next moment 
very quietly and they're drawn like slightly differently. I mean, in recent years, it's the reason I've become so obsessed with this movie in particular because it's, um, they play fast and loose with like the model sheets and it's right. always very, it's always very clear, like what character's meant to be who, mm-hmm. but they're drawn so differently sometimes. And, and again, I think this is, um, like evidence of contrasting his animators and going like, okay, right. Um, you know, this guy, I know he's very good at, uh, comical stuff. And, uh, so I'll give him the scenes when, when Hannah is like going berserk and being all big, like I love Hannah. By the way, I'm just gonna say that's if Evan, if you take anything away, mm-hmm. Hannah is my absolute favorite character. I mean, they're all fantastic characters, but Hannah is my absolute favorite. Completely, yeah, and very, and very lovable characters as well. Um, but yeah, I think I, you know, the, the, the movie does have a reputation for being like you know, people, you know many people's uh, least favorite and the lightest one because there is. Um, thematically probably less to chew on mm-hmm. the film the film um it's not an issues movie it doesn't like it, it doesn't concern itself chiefly with the fact that they're homeless their circumstances is is part of the movie it's just one aspect of it really um uh yeah um i don't know what else to say about it without really sort of like I said, turning it into a two-hour episode about about Tokyo Godfathers. I know, and we and that's that would be a second episode because we've done it before. I believe we that was one of our Christmas episodes a couple of years back. Was 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 it a conversation about Tokyo Godfathers? There we go. There we go. So we've done it. So go and listen to that because I'm probably repeating myself anyway. You know what? That's okay because we're at least in this context we're talking about how that you know because mm-hmm. that was you know it was a big film or it was like you said it was a, a slight departure from what he had become known for and it's kind of really interesting to and like make a point with Evan is like it, made it that yeah. it's, it's good to explore that the fact that the the filmmaker didn't decide to stick with one theme or one idea and he did want to branch out and try different things and I think he it made him all the stronger of a creator for it yeah and but also for me it's, it's also that thing of like it's um just as as a you know as a director as an artisan of um or craftsman like just being like okay right here's a script you know and he was obviously involved with all of his scripts anyway but mm-hmm. what i'm saying is um uh and there's like a i you know he was consciously kind of not going like okay right this is not going to be centered around a woman who has two selves even though it kind of is Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, as an exercise in 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 um, in making a film, I think he still manages to uh, make it a Satoshi Kon film, mm-hmm. even though it's it isn't. You know, it doesn't jump out to you as being one on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess, like, so he, as he was making this, it was he was trying to make like, you know, if if you want to call it like an audience picture where it was, you know, uh, it was, it was comedy and it was playing to uh, an audience in in a conventional way. He was, um, he was, he he found himself with sort of like offcuts of ideas and he didn't necessarily 
have a place for them in Tokyo Godfathers because it was, you know, it was like a lighter movie and, um, mm-hmm. and more straightforward. And I think out of that, he basically began to develop this idea of uh, making it a TV series. Oh, okay. Uh, that's what would become you, uh, Paranoia Agent which is what we're yeah. leading into. Okay. Yeah. Cause I only, again, my haven't seen it because I feel like this is definitely something that like much like uh, perfect blue, I'll have to be in the right mood for to really kind of chew on. <laughs> um, but I get a sense. It's very similar in terms of that idea of that fear of, you know, maybe like, like it says right there in the title paranoia of just yeah. all these and a bunch of different, like, their individual stories all connected with the same like string. Like if some like one of you who've like, um who've had a chance to see it would probably give you more of a concrete description of it. Um because I uh, I, yeah, I sure. definitely got a loose interpretation of it. Uh, Evan, have you have you seen that? Yeah, I'm I'm actually working on a review for it right now. Well okay um, then take oh, it away. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so I guess if I were to sum up the plot, um, because there are so many subplots, just, you know, like in a sentence or two, essentially, um, the film follows all these different characters. um, They're being pursued by this kind of phantom-like character called Little Slugger, who um, always um, attacks them um, when they've reached some sort of um, emotional climax, but not in a good way. Um, Mm. I, I think they describe it as feeling emotionally cornered. Um, so all these anxieties come to a head, little slugger comes in and the film is about them without betraying any spoilers, trying to discover exactly who little slugger is because he's so elusive. Um, nobody can quite get their hands on him. So I guess the big question then, um, if we're getting into the analysis is, um, who is little slugger really? Um, what does he represent and, um, what is Cone trying to tell us, um, Mm. in the grander scope of things? Mm Hmm. Yeah, that's that goes right back to the whole idea, at least with some of those those earlier like discussions in terms of like that of being a lot more cerebral. Then, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I and and that that for me is where it's similar to Perfect Blue because it's it's um, I mean it's kind of been um, mentioned before with with Kong by other people that he he you know he examines um 21st century life in in a way mm-hmm. and and how how people um function really uh mm-hmm. in 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 the early parts of, of of this century and um uh paranoia agent is very much um examining people who live 21st century lives and uh the the, the shonen bat is it's it's sort of you know it could be called a, a satirical because like you're saying Evan, there's a sense of emotional resolution and it's not necessarily you know a nice one or a nice kind of catharsis but it's is reaching a some kind of climax and and it, it's um it's essentially these the series of uh of of assaults in in the street the attacks by um this this figure that's that's described very similarly the entire time, um, and it's almost like a sort of a relief for mm-hmm. people who feel trapped to to be uh, attacked. And I mean that's where the satire of it you know kind of comes in. But yeah. um, I mean for me, I'm a 
big fan of Twin Peaks. And ah, uh, yes. It shares parallels, I mean, on a macro level with Twin Peaks for me of like, huh. well, you, think tw- you think Twin Peaks is who killed Laura Palmer. You think that's the central part of the mystery. And then like, you yeah. know, after season one, it's just, well, no, it's not that. Like it's, it's that's still there. That's like the, the, the driving force of it. And you know, and in Paranoia Agent, that's that's um, Little Slugger or Shonen Bat, as he's called in the in the original version. It's like um, that's the driving force, but the Bacon uses that as sort of like a jumping-off point for all of these like disparate stories that you know. Um, each episode, it's almost like an anthology show, almost because each episode takes place in. Um, in a different setting with different characters. Um, and there are some which sort of, you know, towards the end it starts to, uh, all these disparate threads sort of start to come together. Okay. Um, but he's very, you know, um, purposefully sort of going, well, okay. And, and he said this about making it as well. He wanted to make something where he can, within one sort of arena, make lots of different, um, uh, studies of of different aspects of or, or different types of people mm-hmm. and I think that to, to piggyback off of what you said Dan I think that that sort of move Cone is making to um, be more inclusive um, as as far as the number of, of characters involved is concerned is, is, is a very conscious um, effort um, perfect blue and paranoia agent um, have their differences, but they're fundamentally about the pressure to perform. And I, I think what Cohn's trying to do in Paranoia Agent is kind of expand that singular and unrelatable narrative about a superstar trying to perform, trying to meet the social expectations that she's been presented with mm. and kind of make a story that's applicable to Japanese society as a whole. Um, you have all these different characters who are struggling, I guess, to reconcile what what's expected of them with who they really are and what they can really do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, like the kind of central character, Sukiko, who can't, you know, meet that deadline is, is a great example of that. Um, uh, the father who, um, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, um, does some very awful things. Um, mm-hmm. to his daughter, um, isn't yeah. able to satisfy the role of the traditional, traditionally um, dutiful father. Um, <clears throat> so I, I don't know if I was going anywhere else with that, but I, I think that's kind of like the common thread that ties the two narratives together. No, I, I think that's a, that's a really uh, perceptive, yeah, read on, read on the series as a whole about people feeling the pressure to to perform and to conform with with what's expected of them um, definitely and, in japanese society for sure it's like that mm-hmm. there's yeah there's a lot more pressure to do that there than at least in as far as you know i mean even here in the in the west there is there's also that absolutely type of expectation when it comes to conforming to society and meeting people's expectations and uh have mm-hmm. a prominent fear yeah. being the fear of breaking or not meeting someone else's expectations of you. And, and if you look, oh, sorry, Evan. No, I was just gonna say real quick, Dan, you, you talk about that sort of relief that the characters feel um, when they're attacked. Um, 
I, I might be simplifying um, the role of Little Slugger a bit, but maybe he's some sort of meta- metaphorical representation of suicide, you know? Um, I mean, um, because that, that's the ultimate out, right, is, is ending your own life. Um, I mean, you look at the intro song for the series, the very first image that you see is a Tsukiko standing on top of a building with her shoes off, which is oh God, you know, yeah. what they do before. In Japanese culture, you remove your shoes before you, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do the, commit the act. So um, there might be some sort of connection there. Um, you know, if we're referring back to this, you know, catharsis that people are looking for, that's the ultimate one, and it's so severe um, that I think Satoshi Kon is 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 kind of using that, like Little Slugger, as I guess a euphemistic representation of that. Um, Possibly, yeah. I mean, yeah. I yeah. It's it, it is very much about people searching for where they might find that. Uh, that feeling of release as well. Um, you know, like people living um, uh, a few lives, you know, uh, there's uh, there's an episode about um, uh, like an office worker who, who works by night as an escort. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very much sort of about like, okay, really, who is this for? Is this Is this for you to escape? Is this for um you know uh, uh supplying the service of an escape for for your clients or or you know what is what is that about and it yeah it's about and but it's also um it's one of those things for me where it you can you can decide whether to hold it at arm's length or not and you can decide whether to invest in it or to lean back and to sort of um i mean there is an episode which in fact in the UK has been um, quite heavily censored because it deals really? so well yeah it deals so um, uh, uh, so head-on with the uh, with the uh, like you know the taboo subject really of, mm. of suicide mm-hmm. um, and it's and it's all about uh, yeah I won't I won't I won't go into it too much but it's all about people who are planning on committing suicide and in a sort of twisted uh, take on it, it's depicted in a very light way. And in some ways, they're the most well-adjusted people. Exactly. The happiest people that are like, depicted on the show because, um, uh, because they, they, you know, they, they have a relationship with, uh, you know, knowing, I mean, if in effect knowing what they want more than other characters but i mean and then um you know there are it's it's not all it's not all about that it is very much about um uh how we see ourselves within a society as well and um there is there is a lot of fun to be played with you know who who the main character is and and you know the, this this idea of playing around with well, you know, does the protagonist sort of have a self? You know, is the is the protagonist who you really think it is, or is it just someone with a, a self-inflated sense of importance about you know who they are within the, you know their circles and um, and whether maybe it really is up to uh, to the, to uh, you know um, traditional. Uh, society's traditional structures to decide who actually carries the weight of things and, mm-hmm. and who doesn't. It sounds very deep. 
It's also it a lot is. of it also it's also a lot of fun to watch because it's a Satoshi Satoshi Kon uh, led project. I mean, I think he directed like the first episode and the last two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a showcase for you know the different styles and you know from episode to episode the different directors are allowed to flex to flex their muscles and swing their arms in, in sorts awesome. of ways that that are unique to them um yeah it's very much worth worth checking out i saw it for the first time this year like hmm. probably like the height of the lockdown in in london and hmm. I, in a way like that was a weird sort of um release <laughs> in a way for me as well to interesting like, well things are really bad so like why yeah. could it hurt why could it hurt to watch to watch um you know a notoriously sort of unsettling show mm-hmm. um but anyway i i think the resolution came again and again i was like well it certainly ended and it has a resolution of sorts but i'm gonna need to go back and unpick though what that meant and mm-hmm. what it means to me so it's and, and in that sense it's also uh akin to twin peaks for me where it's like okay well maybe if i run at it from this angle it'll make sense yeah you uh, basically you just added so many more points of interest for me by comparing it to twin peaks because that is something i uh watched and enjoyed with a good group of friends of mine uh, a couple years back when we were right we, we just all right. decided to sit down and watch it and we all loved it. So I'm thinking like this, uh, this sounds like a similar, uh, a kind of similar idea. It has, it has similarities. It has similarities. And, the, and you know, particularly if you compare it to like Twin Peaks season three, it's like, mm-hmm. where the hell is this going? I mean, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know. What happened to everything? We were just the entire, the thing that we went, we've gone two seasons through of exploring. Yeah. Like, apparently that's like yeah. getting the whole. Or, or like there's yeah. a cliffhanger and you go like, cool. So the next episode's going to resolve the, yeah. oh no, cool. We're somewhere entirely different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, oh boy. So that was, uh, so that's Paranoia Asian. And that was, I think, 2004? Yeah, 2004. Yeah. Okay, cool. So in terms of timeline, we've gone from 2008 to 2004. And then the next two years, he spends making his next uh, feature movie. And that is Paprika, which, uh, from what I understand, has to do with... Um, I've, a lot of people have compared this film to Inception um, and the fact that it has to delve with a lot with um, kind of like this dreamscape uh, in a way. So, um, Evan, uh, could you maybe talk a little bit what that movie's about, since I, again, have not seen it? <laughs> yeah, um, so Paprika's not super fresh on my mind. Um, okay. Dan might be able to provide a better summary, but uh, essentially... Um, Someone in, in, in this universe has engineered a device um, that allows you to physically step into somebody else's dream. Um, I think the um, idea behind it originally was so it could be used for therapeutic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, some sort of unnamed villain who's actually they were named, the name just slipping my mind, um, <laughs> abuses that technology. And the film essentially is about um, hopping through these different dreamscapes to find that person. Um, before the physical and the dream worlds just completely collide and everything goes south. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> it's yeah, a trip. Yeah, oh, but yeah. Because, I mean, I thought Inception on, it, on its own was a trip. Like, I, and I've seen clips of Paprika and in terms of its visual style. And it's, 
um the most colorful i think for sure of all oh, yeah. of the movies um because like i said a, a lot of them i know perfect blue uses a lot of reds when it's in its uh like it's getting to its more intense like tone um tokyo godfathers more or less has got very kind of like uh like i would say just more like realistic coloring like you said not really a style like you said earlier dan like they're not stylizing anything or idealizing the aspect of tokyo that we see or the city that we see in um in that movie um and i can't speak to paranoia agent but um from what I saw, at least it's just, it, this seems like the, of the, all of these films, the most colorful, visual, visually striking in terms of the fact that it's just got a very bright and vivid color palette. Yeah, yeah it's it, definitely something you, you could make a nice trailer for and <laughs> yeah. get people like intrigued, like, what the hell is that movie? What is that? How, is, how do those images make any sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, kind of, kind of like Inception, I guess. I mean, it does have similarities to Inception, um, but I think like a lot of the similarities are just sort of, um, you know, uh, the ways that uh, you know very smart filmmakers deal with solving problems uh, about how to depict dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you know the technology is created in, in Paprika for the dreaming. But it's 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 quite coyly sort of you know there's like a device that you hook around the back of your head and it mm-hmm. kind of slots above your ear. But apart from that, it doesn't really try to even explain how it works or why it works in the same way that in Inception they never really explain their technology either. It's about okay, how do we get as fast as possible to play around with these with these images and these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think uh, to like look at it from his career point of view, Paprika is interesting um, because it was it's based why well, it's a it's an adaptation actually um, of of a novel. Ah, okay. Uh, that was that was published in uh, in in a woman's magazine um, in the early nineties, and it actually was a massive influence on uh, on Khan. Um, you know, pretty much. I think from like Millennium Actress onwards. And uh, supposedly there's this sense, I think, uh, for him personally, that that he absorbed um, the ways that the novel plays with dreams and memories and ideas. And he was, he was always um, uh, harnessing sort of that influence and exercising it through Millennium Actress and uh, and I guess like Paranoia Agent. Um, so for him, when he finally came to adapt them, you know, it really was like, I've finally come back full circle to Paprika, the thing that is the reason I I um, I work in this sort of like, uh, um, in the fashion that I do sort of playing with, with, um, with time and, and space and the way that I do. Mm. Um, and uh, it's an interesting movie. I, I think also he said there's a there's a good um, making of documentary where he sort of mentions like like this is that I, I I have like my well behaved con and like hooligan con, <laughs> and this movie is like letting hooligan con off the leash and just getting to you know go buck wild with uh, with um, 
with imagery and you know he clearly has like a much higher budget than anything he worked in before mm. and it's i mean it's it's what the kids would call a flex um, <laughs> i think uh it, an animation flex no less well yeah it's again like you know he's got his crew on board again his um uh you know the animators he knows he can rely on um I don't really know. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, I think, um, Evan, like you set the movie up perfectly. I don't know how the hell to describe it from there. Like, it's just sort of, it's <laughs> well, a bit like, you know, it's about, well, okay, the, these two forces fighting for, um, the MacGuffin, the, the DC mini, which, which has the power for, for dreaming and the decision of, you know, what are you going to use this for good or evil? Like it's, it's a pretty simple setup in, in essence. And I, I really think this is just my opinion, but to, to fully appreciate Paprika, um, you have to consider the larger scope of Khan's work. Um, Dan, you've, you've talked about this film as being kind of the apex of his, I, I guess, visual artistry. I'd argue that from a thematic standpoint, it might also be kind of the, 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 um, the climax of, of a much larger narrative. Um, Every Cone film, as frightening or as confusing as it can be, I think is fundamentally about empathy and compassion and just understanding other people and how they think. Um, and you can kind of see this gradual progression as he moves from Perfect Blue, which is about a very contained experience. Mima's living her own personal hell by herself. And then into films with Millennium Actress and, um, you know, like series like Paranoia Agent where it's more immersive and the characters actually start seeing what other characters are seeing. And then that's finally realized, I guess, in Paprika um, where dreams physically materialize um, so that they're no longer kept in the dark. Um, so as, as zany as the film is, I really think it kind of represents this like underpinning almost humanitarian narrative um, where, you know, we are just trying to, to see um, reality for how it's experienced in the mind of those around us and not mm. for how it physically manifests itself, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. It absolutely makes sense. It's like the idea of sometimes when you get an idea or a story in your head and you want to be able to express that to another person, but almost like just the mere talking about it or describing it isn't enough. Like you, you wish like you just basically say, oh no, here, let me show you, reach into your own brain and be like, here, look at what I'm looking at. Or here's, this is what I'm exactly. thinking basically. And that's, that sounds to me like that's kind of like, in terms of empathy and understand and understanding between uh, humans or human beings, that's, that seems to be what the film's going for. And that's fascinating to explore. Both the, both the good, the positives of that kind of uh, exchange, as well as the, yeah, like you said, the people who would take advantage of that in a negative way. That, that makes for a really good, really good story. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. And it, and it plays, you know, you talk about empathy, it's, it's um, and it sounds a bit simplistic and maybe cheap to, to try and describe it this way, but it's playing with the idea of, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes and seeing there are moments in the movie where um, characters find themselves inhabiting the body of, of others and, and realizing, oh, this is how it feels to be in this situation. Um, mm -hmm. 
and using that i mean you know there's a detective in in the film as well and and uh you know apart from you know the function of detectives being coming to a scene and trying to understand what happened or, or what is happening um it's also you know it uses that character to for effect when it comes to this this idea of um images from your past that may that may haunt you really and stick with you and and why and the way that in you know in your mind they replay again and again and again and again and and kind of naturally because of that i think like a lot of movies that are about dreams they're about it's about filmmaking as well and there are lots of parts of the movie where they ex the characters like explicitly discuss like filmmaking theory and mm. um and the power of filmmaking and i mean not to give it away but in many ways um it's the key to a lot of uh, the mysteries in the film uh yeah i'm i, I guess it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um oh god there's a there's a, there's a movie by a director uh, i really like called uh Hirokazu Koreeda uh, called uh, Afterlife and it's 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 this it's a live action movie and it's about um, uh, people who find themselves uh, having passed over and this uh, this institute they find themselves in um, is able to recreate a memory that they that they want to that they can have uh, um, uh, staged and then filmed and I mean I think this film has a lot of um, similarities to the way that you know it, it's 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 a cliche really in filmmaking to talk about films as dreams but you know th this film tackles that uh, tackles that like sometimes literally and uh, sometimes metaphorically and um, yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting film I mean like I said I kind of struggle with with the plot I can't tell you why things end up the way they are and I mean I guess that's kind of also the delight for Kong in, <laughs> in, in you know just going well, well this scene is now this because well you know they're skipping through people's dreams and you're waking up and you don't know whether you're asleep or awake or whose dream you're in um, so it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to like you know, find something to to handle to sort of orient myself with the, with the film when I'm talking about it because mm -hmm. what I'm thinking of is just the images that come up and and uh, the way that they repeat or they don't make sense or the way that they reveal themselves to make more sense from an when seen to, from another angle or from you know someone someone else's point of view. Maybe that's really Kong's charm, though. Um... You know, Dan, you talk about this sense of ambiguity and uncertainty you feel when you're watching his films. Um, but, um, you, you know, I, I guess you could see that in, uh, in a poem or, or in a painting, you know, this kind of multidimensionality that brings the viewer back time and again, because you always discover or try to discover something new. Um, maybe that's just what art is supposed to do is provoke the imagination. Um, I, I won't pretend i'll never say that i've mastered a single cone film um, <laughs> because he's he's just too smart for us or too smart for me um oh yeah you always feel like you're in safe hands when you there's never a sense of like 
he doesn't know where this is. Like, you always get the sense that you know you're 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 running along with him because it's like, well, you you know you I'm, you know you get this feeling that you well everything is going to make sense at the end, and and there's clearly a reason behind everything. So it doesn't feel like. Um, Funnily enough, I don't think it feels too indulgent, even though he, you know, he has sort of said of this film that it might be his most indulgent, particularly when it comes to just, you know, having fun with uh, with images and animation. Indulgence a great word. Um, it's it's tempting, I guess. Um, it's a bit of a loaded to... one as well. Yeah, well, but I, I think I know what you mean. It, it's tempting to experience a work of art and I, I, and want to understand it. I think we have this kind of subconscious inclination to master, uh, to master it because we're uncomfortable with the notion of not being able to understand something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to rant about this right now, but especially, <laughs> you know, in, in the age of um you know paprika explained paprika's ending explained oh my god it it kind of defies that kind of analysis it really does which is um which is refreshing but uh, it's i mean you know like you know like, like i'm saying through all the uncertainty that you that you feel and the ambiguity that you feel you essentially feel like you're in safe hands and crucially as you've said evan you know it's um you get this sense that it comes from a place of empathy and of like, uh, you know, um, a, a humanist uh, strand of, of, of hope uh, when it comes to what it means. You know, it's not depicted as, okay, right, there's this new technology in the world. The only outcome can be, you know, it, it's... Um, uh, you know, Garden of Eden, you know, it's like, that's over, like, that was the sin. No, he's actually making a case for, well, how do we, you know, because humans fundamentally can't change, so how do we how do we adapt to this new world that, as we're creating it? Um, and, I mean, you know, in terms of looking at his, 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 uh, his body of work as, as a filmography, the last scene that he has is is kind of perfect in Paprika. I mean, we'll get on to, you know, his famous uh, unfinished film and, and another last project that he did. But mm-hmm. his 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 final statement is, "Hey, movies are good. <laughs> like it's 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 a really um, Let's sit down and watch a movie, guys. Yeah, it doesn't have a it, it's 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 not a pessimistic." Um, note that he that he leaves you on and I, I mean i appreciate that and i don't necessarily personally take that as a sign of um oh what's the word like a filmmaker diluting themselves or mm. or being a lesser work of art because of that message mm-hmm. all right yeah so um and you mentioned, Dan, that there was an unfinished film that he was trying to work on. Um, mm. I know there was a short film. Let me go back to my list here because I had it up on my, um, my notes here. That uh, he, in 2008, he had a short film, uh, I believe it was part of uh, Annie Curie, and it's called uh, simply Good Morning. 
it's like this very like short, like just one minute short of uh, depicting a woman getting up and, you know, having difficulty waking up in the morning. And that's literally the entire, um, the entirety of the short. Um, but just to elaborate uh, in terms of this unfinished film, uh, could you maybe go a bit more detail on that, what you know about that? Well, I mean, you know, it's my understanding that, like we were saying with Paprika, he kind of felt as though it was the culmination of, of something for him. Mm -hmm. His, his, um, his treatise on, you know, uh, dual identities and, and uh, 21st century life and those dilemmas and public life and person, you know, and, and private lives. Um, and I think for him, it really was a moment of, okay, right, time to zag because, I, I, you know, you can very easily get, get, um, get stuck in, in, in a way of doing something. Anyway, so he was very consciously making this decision of, oh, I think I want to make a family movie. Hmm. Um, he said that he wanted to make a film for kids. Okay. Um, and I mean, you know, Satoshi Kong, so I don't think it would have necessarily have been, uh, you know, your Trolls World Tours or anything like that. <laughs> but I think it, um, which is a good movie though. I saw that recently and, oh no, we spoke about it on the last episode. It's a fun movie. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so he wanted to make this movie called Dreaming Machine. Or ah. Dream, Dream Machine. Um, and like any other of his movies, he started production on it and it was going to be like a kind of road movie um, with three robots as the protagonists. And in fact, you can see uh, glimpses, of, glimpses of these characters in, uh, in the theme park in Paprika. Oh my goodness, okay. Um, anyway, so, you know, uh, you know the, the sad story is that he didn't get to finish the film because he died, um, you know, as it was being made. Uh, mm -hmm. He died very suddenly. He was, he was very, um, very suddenly diagnosed with cancer within you know, the period of half a year. Um, and then he, he had to, uh, you know, give up his directing duties. Um, but it's my understanding that he, uh, he more or less finished the storyboarding for this film. Mm -hmm. uh, and it began production. Um, and, you know, it's, I think like some a third of it or something had been animated and, you know, he made whatever preparations he could uh, for it to be passed on to another director. So there were lots mm -hmm. of like notes and um, uh, uh, audio recordings of his like directorial thoughts on the film. Mm -hmm. um, but sadly, you know, he died. And I think, uh, you know, the other director who helmed it, um, you know, tried to keep on making it, but it became very clear that, oh, well, this isn't going to be a Satoshi Kon film. This is going to be, you know, our best attempt at it. And it's not going to be his last film. His last film was Paprika. And through a series of, 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 of you know, unfortunate events, um, slowly the film production shut down and it's kind of been abandoned ever since. Mm. Um, and like many film, um, many filmmakers, he now has a, famous uh, unfinished last film and um it remains to be seen what's going to be done with it um 
you know, because there's a lot of material and mm-hmm. I'm sure fans, uh, uh, you know, are very interested to see that material and, and to learn about what sort of film it might have been. Um, I think there's a documentary being made by a French crew. Uh, I think it might, in fact, be complete um, mm. about his, uh, you know, the final, uh, the final stages of his career and, and life. And I think, you know, that's probably going to be the best uh, chance that fans are going to have to to find out more about it, really. Um, but yeah, like it's you know it's 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 intriguing to speculate about what that film might have been and uh, and all these other things. But you know, we we won't ever really know. I don't think. Yeah, let me let me really quick while we're while we're talking about it, uh, see if I can pull up, and I'll make sure to leave um, if I find any images. You said there are images online for for what like pictures of like the characters and stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was, it was so far into production that there, there's like concept art you can see and, um, uh, you know, like production backgrounds and things like that. I think that he like put on his website and, and like actually some stills uh, from the film as well. It's, oh yeah, um, yeah, there are a few here. Yeah, and it, it does look like a lighter film and it does look like... Um, I mean, but it also looks very unconventional. It doesn't look like a typical anime film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sort that you'd have kids watch on over the summer or half time. It doesn't look like a like a Shin Chan film or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It, it it looks intriguing. You can only wonder what it means. It looks a lot brighter, I guess, and and probably more lighthearted than than his other films. But uh, yeah, we we can only really speculate, I guess, which is a shame. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I mean, you know, I guess technically his final film is uh, his final feature is Paprika, and he did you know a short film uh, that was broadcast on TV. Um, but I, I like the I like the short film because it's also again like it's like the Tokyo Godfather thing for me, where it's like okay, right? If you strip everything away, all the all the all the whistles and bells that a filmmaker has to play with when they're forced to work in a very simple um, uh, in a simple fashion, I think that's when uh, they reveal who they are a lot more. Mm -hmm. And you can still kind of see Satoshi Kong, not just in the style, but in, in, I think the filmmaking language that he, that he uses in that short. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful little short and something uh, else that I noticed that I'd love that when I look at, especially when he's, he has a scene and he's got a character like in their home environment, like how much stuff he's able to depict in each character's like, like this is the same for Perfect Blue with uh, uh, Mima and um, uh, the same kind of level of details put into the environments in Tokyo Godfather's what I've seen. Yeah. Like you were able to learn so much about these characters, not just from how they behave, but also like if you get a chance to see their living space, what's in their living space. Like I remember when I was uh, looking through Perfect Blue, I'm looking through, um, you know, you get to see Mima's room more or less, you know, uh, quite a bit to see how she has her whole living space set up. And I couldn't believe it. I saw a Sony PlayStation, like just sitting there in her mm-hmm. in, in her bookshelf and I'm like, hey, 
she plays video games. She's a PlayStation gal. But like it's it's interesting, like just with like those little details that you like they're not in your face in the film. No. Uh, but it tells you a lot about like in the case of this short film, um, Ohio or Good Morning, um, you can immediately tell why the character's, you know, struggling to get because you see right to the left, you see cards that has like happy birthday, you see an empty glass of wine, what looks like a couple of beer cans, so you can tell she's probably had maybe a little one too many uh, the previous night, and then you kind of get this really beautiful uh, after effect of like her getting up off, out of bed and starting what looks to be like a morning routine. But a then ghost you racer. Can, yeah, you see like this after, after image or yeah, <laughs> a ghost racer image of just like, you know, like herself on a delay, like just, and to be fair, when I've gotten up in the morning and I really don't feel like it, I kind of get that kind of like, it, it, a great visual depiction of like, of that particular feeling or emotion, at least in my eyes, because I, I can tell you I've had those mornings where it's just yeah. like, yeah, it's like I don't want to be up. And mornings when you get up and you you can see your ghost race yourself, like they're like, <laughs> oh right, yeah, I was right. I'm I'm late. Like I was I was actually up and and respectably dressed and everything this time yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic you have that kind of observancy though, Rachel, because I, I think that's what uh, Cone is probably expecting or, or at least wanting from his viewers uh, i mean i'm paraphrasing but, but at some point i think he said in animation nothing is ever accidental everything there has been drawn it's intentionally there so paying attention to those kind of i guess visceral background details details um is essential to understanding the character in the story like you said mm -hmm. yeah totally yeah like yeah if you're just, if you're set dressing you don't just say hey what's in the prop box it's like okay, what sort of TV does she have? Why does she have that kind of TV? And yeah, you can, you know, and, and again, that's a, that's a sign for me of, of a good director. Like, you know, they say good directors are people who know what they want, mm -hmm. what they want to see. And there's no, um, there's no greater test of that really of being an animation director and being asked like, okay, right, we can have any kind of room Like, what kind of room is it? And, and he know and he, and he knows and he, and he does it, and there's this sense of, um, uh, there's this like, you know, for me, like looking at his um, his filmmaking eye, there is this very sharp sense of clarity about him, um, you know, finding what he wants to say and saying it, and saying it with this uh, directness uh, that's, that's really appealing for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, which sounds odd, like, because his films are so ambiguous, but I think in terms of his his eye and the sorts of compositions and, and shot choices he uses and progressions of scenes, he, he's, um, he's very precise. And I think that's made his films all the, all the better for it. It's, it's what's, I think, drawn so many people to them and why even, you know, years later in the year 2020 you know we still make time to watch them we still want to talk about them and even mm -hmm. with those ambiguous films you know there is no clear answer and i don't think there was ever intended to be a clear answer for any of those like the more difficult questions that some of his films ask um in terms of their theming or their idea in the narrative um i think 
it's just one of those things that it's just every single time you go back to it there's more like you might see something you didn't originally or you might pick up on something that you didn't originally and i think that's that's the mark of a master is uh master animator director and storyteller in general is that if you you get something more from the story every time single time you come back to it mm-hmm. and that's how those stories and those films stand the test of time and in the in the broader context of animation as like like a legitimate artistic medium as you know a form of storytelling mm-hmm. that is on par with live action cinema satoshi khan you know if we're just kind of summing up everything we've discussed is is really kind of an important figure i guess because he's not only had a direct influence um on live action directors um but kind of i guess ha- has that appeal um that might be attractive to someone who wouldn't otherwise watch animated film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I guess I'd kind of describe him, you know, I, some people might ascribe this, you know, this title to Miyazaki. I think there are arguments for both, but he's kind of the bridge between worlds, you know, um, yeah. you know, that the individual connecting the live action, you know, auteur lover um, to the animated auteur lover. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Like, so if, Kind of like, you know, if you want, I remember there was an instance where I've been like trying to introduce certain people that I know, you know, to how Japanese animation can be so different from Western animation and trying mm-hmm. to find the right things to introduce, um, you know, and something that I know at least when it came with my relationship, that kind of relationship with my father, I showed him Cowboy Bebop and that was the, that was the show that really hooked him. So now when I make recommendations of anime, he's a lot more interested at least like and he'll ask me he's like okay is it like is it kind of like cowboy bebop and i'm like well let's see and then it'll help narrow us down like okay is this something you want to watch no or is this one something you want to watch yeah um so perhaps for someone like like someone like him who might be more appreciative of say you know more live action films that kind of dabble in different genres maybe like those kind of films would be an easier way or at least like this at the, the bridge film between someone who may not be as familiar with this particular kind of uh medium as say like say you know diehards like the three of us and say oh check this out and it's like oh this is really awesome i've never seen animation do that before and then we can just kind of you know sit there like wagging our eyebrows at the camera we're like hey you want to see more i know there's more <laughs> mm-hmm. You now have your foot in the water. Time to take a swim. (laughs) Oh man, that is real. This was really fun conversation. I think we're just about at our two hour mark. So I think that's probably a good place to kind of put a pin uh, in this discussion on Satoshi Kon. I think we more or less, aside from maybe a, a couple of others like side projects where he maybe worked as an animator in terms of his main directorial, uh, like the most things that people know him for i think we pretty much covered all of it so yeah wow that i i have to have a few more films to add to my list of stuff to watch and now i can finally check off the mark that i have finally watched perfect blue and i'm like okay it'll probably be another couple years before i have the courage to watch that film again but um okay let me i'll make it slightly into that if i do watch it again i'll probably not watch it alone this time (laughs) Good idea. Um, but yes, uh, 
Yeah, thank you everyone who uh, has uh, stayed with us for this conversation. Um, we had a, I had a fantastic time. I hope, gentlemen, you did as well. Um, and Evan, thank you once again for joining the podcast crew, as it were. And we look forward to having you back on for future episodes. Um, thank you, Rachel. Uh, thank you. Uh, and if you want to stay, uh, for those listening, if you want to stay tuned with what's coming up down the line, uh, please stay tuned to our blog, uh, animationforadults.com, and our various social media feeds, uh, which we will all have listed below. I'm not going to go bother listing with them since we are on a time crunch, but um, I will make time to uh, always say, please uh, support Animation Nights New York and Yvonne for all, and um, of course, Evan, for all the hard work you guys are doing in, in midst of what's going on right now. Uh, to find new formats for those short films to continue to get viewing. Um, and we'll leave uh, links to Animation Night New York website and uh, how to support them in the link below. Um, and for each of our personal social media feeds, uh, Evan, where can we find you on social media if people are curious to see what you're up to? Uh, I'm an old man. I've just got Facebook. So <laughs> uh, you can read my articles on AFA. There you go. <laughs> I know. And also keep an eye out for uh, that paranoia agent uh, review that you've got coming up. So uh, a we'll couple of days. What, yep. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Who knows? By the time this episode comes out, it, uh, it might already be on the website. So check it out. Um, and uh, Dan, where can we find you on social media? Great. Oh, you can find me on Twitter, regrettably still, <laughs> uh, at Hamu. That is okay. There's nothing to really regret. It's here's the thing, is, Rachel. I'm sorry. There is plenty to regret about. Being that is, before. you know, you know, fair. At I the same I, time. I looked at I looked at my phone. I sometime yesterday afternoon, and like Twitter was just like full of, yeah, bile. And I was like, why do why did why did I just like why did I keep like a like a little you know, like a little room in my pocket where I just open it and it's just like, just, you know, it's just, but anyway, um, there is nice animation people on there too. There uh, is. That's pretty, I mean, that's pretty the reason that I liked, I still use social media at this point in fight. time. It's, that's it's, the, it's, that's fighting the good fight. Just, staying, staying away from the news, from the, 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 the make you fear to feel terrible about the world news versus yeah. keeping up to date with the people who are, like, hey, look at this cool thing I made. And then you see this adorable animation of a girl who has a bunny who turns into a witch's hat. Like, hi, yes. that, that is freaking yes. phenomenal. I want to see that. I want to give that a series in a movie. I will, I, will, I will send you the link to that. I'll even include it in the, the link below here because it's an a artist I started following on, uh, on Patreon recently. So, um, Excellent. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I'll leave a link for people who are curious. But as, as far as I am concerned, my primarily I do have a Twitter account at fail to ninja, as well as a Instagram account, which I am on a lot more often, um, because I enjoy looking at the, you know, I, I prefer, I think, picture blog format than anything else. So um, yeah, that is uh, fail to ninja at Instagram. All right, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, wash your hands. And uh, have a happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thanks, guys. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. <laughs>
And then the audio fades out. So much to explore at Total Wine and More. Pinot Noirs, Grigios, Champagnes, and Chardonnays, plus more than 2,500 beers and bourbon barrel-aged. Tequila, rum, scotch, and gin, vermouth that's extra dry. Hard seltzers and single malts, so many for you to try. Now offering delivery in select markets. See details at TotalWine.com delivery. Drink responsibly, B21. Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.